BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. White House memoir is out and extraordinary. Pastor Bolden, it's been a few years since you've been on our show. Uh, thank you for showing up today. I'm curious, you have said in other interviews that you don't want to talk about whether you specifically told Donald Trump that the Russians were paying bounties to kill Americans, but certainly you're reading the news reports right now. I'm curious your take on that issue and, you know, in general right now, as it appears. Well, you know, uh, the, the White House story changes from day to day or sometimes even within a given day. But I do understand that as of uh, earlier on Wednesday, they're acknowledging that there's at least what they call uh, raw intelligence out there uh, to this effect. And uh, it's still being verified and so on and so forth. But look, I think when you get reports of uh, uh, Russians paying bounties to Taliban to uh, try and kill American service members, you're really uh, talking about something that's just as serious as direct Russian efforts to kill American service members. In the world of intelligence, look, in, in the world of open source knowledge in, in government, you're always faced with some level of uncertainty, and uh, that's, that's just part of the way things are. Uh, intelligence doesn't come neatly sealed saying, this is fully verified, you can believe it, and the rest of it you can't. So I think having a response to this, thinking about what a response is, is something that's very important. And for the president to go out of his way to say, well, I didn't know anything about this, leaves me very worried. It may be he's concerned about his failed peace deal with the Taliban. Uh, I, I don't really know what to attribute it to, but the whole thing has been disturbing, and it's a signal to our adversaries, not just the Russians, but to others, that once again, we, we don't have our act together. We have watched members of the Trump family, Jared Kushner, traveling around the Middle East looking for a billion dollars to bail out his building. Trump's daughter, uh, you know, cutting deals with the Chinese and getting all these patents and trademarks and things. These allegations right here being part of a larger fabric of all the times that Trump has genuflect, not just to Putin, but to other other dictators. Erdogan appears to be fairly high on his list of he snaps his fingers and Trump jumps. And I do recall a year or two ago, Erdogan actually making a comment that Trump owns two hotels in Turkey and Erdogan could pull a plug on them. I'm curious your thoughts on a second Trump term. To the extent that he appears to have sold out his country so far, how much worse could it get? 
Well, I am worried about a second Trump term. Uh, I think the damage that's been done in the first term is repairable. Uh, I feel very confident of that. But I'm worried in a second term that the lack of confidence that he's generated in our closest allies, the feeling among our adversaries that they know how to play him, that he's, they think he's an easy mark, that a lot of these attributes that have been demonstrated in the first term will really be exploited in a second term. So it's to me, it's not a happy election prospect here. I mean, for the first time in my adult life, I'm not going to vote for the Republican presidential nominee. I did in 20. 16. I thought, given the alternatives, it was worth taking the risk on Trump. So I did vote for him in 2016. But after 17 months in the administration, and in good conscience, I just can't do it this time. Given how enthusiastically Mike Pence has basically sucked up to Donald Trump, if uh, Trump were not to be the candidate, and there's a variety of scenarios that posit that, and Mike Pence is the candidate coming out of the Republican convention, What are your thoughts about what that means for the future were he to get elected? Well, I don't want to get Pence in trouble, but if for whatever reason he were on the ballot uh, as the presidential nominee this November, I I would vote for him. Look, being vice president is probably really the hardest job in in government in some respects, unlike the rest of us who work for a president. The vice president really has no option of resigning. You know, he was elected in the Electoral College. He needs to serve out his term. It's very hard to serve with discretion in that position. And I think Pence has done the best he can in a very difficult place. Okay. CNN is reporting that H.R. McMaster, you, Defense Secretary James Mattis, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, John Kelly, have all at various times used the phrase or a similar phrase. This is a quote from CNN. The president is often delusional in his conversations with foreign leaders, particularly with strongman foreign leaders. But, you know, there's reports now about how he was trashing Angela Merkel, for example, to her face, uh, calling her stupid. She's got a Ph.D. in physics. How delusional is he? I mean, is is he really that disconnected from reality that Or is this just, you know, he's just a bizarre person with weird beliefs? Well, you know, the book, which some people have complained is too long and too detailed, is designed to put facts in front of people and let them make up their own minds. I mean, it's got conclusions and opinions in it, but that's not really the reason I wrote it. And the president does have trouble with facts. There's no doubt about it. Uh, things that don't suit him get changed. Numbers come and go. I mean, it's uh, it's you, you know you never know exactly what he's going to say. But I think if people look at the evidence, they can draw their own conclusions. I'm not writing bumper stickers. I'm not a shrink myself. As I say, there my opinions are in there. You can't miss them. But I hope they don't get in the way of the facts. People can disagree, but I've written this down as best I could. I've tried to be as accurate as I could. I, I didn't write the book just for this election season. Really, I wrote it to be around 50 years from now when the, the players are no longer on the scene so that people will know what it was really like inside the room where it happened. There are some Republicans who are talking about the possibility that with the COVID chaos this fall, we could end up with a couple of large Republican states. Uh, The ones that I've heard mentioned more than once are Florida and Texas. 
after the election saying, sorry, we just can't certify this election, which would, under the 12th Amendment, throw the election to the House of Representatives where Donald Trump would get reelected. You know, each state has one vote under the 12th Amendment. Have you heard anything like that? And do you think that that might be part of a, a strategy that Trump would pull out of the hat? Well, I haven't seen any evidence of that, and I, I just think it's important that critics of the president, and I, I suppose I'm among that number now, publicly need to base their criticism on evidence. But I will tell you this, I feel, just as a citizen, I think voting ought to be in person whenever possible. We're able to do it all on one day, something that couldn't be done in the early years of the country. I think it's an act of uh, civic participation for everybody to go out to vote. I think you can... You can find ways to social distance, and people can wear masks in the polling places. I think that's an aspiration we should look for. I think absentee ballots should be the exception, not the rule. And it's because of this possibility of chaos. I, th- I think this time around, it's it's even more important. I'm, I'm worried about the delay. Look, I spent 33 days in Florida in the contest of the Florida election in 2000. That's not anything I ever want to go through again. And I certainly hope we don't see it this fall. Ambassador Bolton, thanks for dropping by today. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. So John Bolton, his book is The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, former national security advisor of the United States. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History by Jay Sexton. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is page nine. The quest for national security and global power, America's shifting position in the international economy, and fluctuations in immigration have made the United States the nation that it is today. Americans' foreign relations have conditioned its history not only in their cumulative effects over the long haul, but also as a result of their volatility. In periods of crisis, America's position in the world has lurched in unexpected directions. For as inexorable as the rise of the United States appears in retrospect, there have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. 
the foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it, also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest exports, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated form of its colonial experience and, like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that, for all its limitations, further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals a truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls. His website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. I hope you're staying safe. And uh, what's, on, what's on the top of your mind today? Yeah, Tom, thanks. Uh, glad to be here from Washington. You know, honestly, I think one of the things I'm watching with uh, great concern is just the spike in COVID cases. The fact that, according to the New York Times, as of today, in 14 days, we have an 82% increase in cases you know, we're getting back up to the numbers when we close down, and I don't think there's a lot of appetite to fully close down, but there certainly should be appetite to do something as simple as wearing a damn mask. And uh, unfortunately, um, we're still fighting uh, too many trends there. The good news, I guess, uh, looking for good news is Mike Pence wore a mask. Mitch McConnell made a statement about wearing masks. Uh, so did Lamar Alexander. I think we're starting to see even Donald Jr. in a tweet uh, said something about uh, masks. Maybe we're having a breakthrough where this isn't political, whether to wear one or not. I, I would be fine if we issue red and blue ones, if that's what people want. Uh, as long as we're wearing a mask, that would be fine. But, you know, we've been told by uh, doctors that have appeared before my appropriations committee that 70 to 80 percent of people wear a mask in public. We wouldn't have a resurgence. And right now the numbers really worry me for unemployment, for small business survival, for deaths. 
that could occur, even though more of the people being affected right now are younger. So just really a lot of concern I'm, I'm having around this. Yeah. There's just some remarkable statistics on this. If you are interacting with a person who is infectious, who has COVID and doesn't realize it, and you're wearing a mask, that cuts your probability of transmission down to only 70%. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, but if the person with COVID is wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask, the probability of transmission is 1.5%. I yeah. mean, it becomes almost nothing. And just that simple thing of, of both people wearing a mask, if just the person with COVID is wearing the mask, uh, that reduces the transmission probability all the way down to 5%, even if you're not wearing a mask. But, mm-hmm. but you know, both wearing a mask, 1.5%. It's incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah, and, you know, we're not, um, we don't have a, a movement for liberty in this country to be able to shop barefoot. Um, we accept that mm-hmm. uh, you have to have shoes to go into a store, right? Why can't we just accept that you wear a mask into any store or a public place? But seeing others, I am a little bit gratified by that, although I think it may be, again, too little too late. We're now in the middle of this again. And, uh, you know, I, I think we talked a little last week. I don't know if you saw, but American Airlines and I believe United Airlines are both doing 100% full planes. Only Delta is keeping the middle seats open. And, again, you know, just... We have to be so much smarter than we're being as a country. It's bad enough the guy on top is is being stupid on this issue, as well as a few others. We, we don't need everyone else to follow that stupidity in their own behavior. Yeah, especially when we're bailing these big corporations out. It's nuts. Yeah. Okay, well, let's pick up phone calls here. Yeah. Uh, Beth in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for all your good work, both of you. I was curious to see if anybody is worried about what Putin might do if Trump looks like he's not going to be reelected or if he's not reelected. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, what, what Putin will do in either case, uh, I don't know. I think Putin is just, you know, personally, I don't think he has an emotional attachment to uh, Donald Trump like Donald Trump has to him. Uh, you know, Donald Trump seems to admire the strongman dictator types. But uh, when it comes to Putin, you know, he's just, in many ways, I think he just likes to play with the U.S., right? That's part of his sport, and uh, he likes to manipulate elections and things. And I, I don't know if there's, again, a great attachment to Donald Trump. Donald Trump certainly is trying to do that attachment, I think, personally for his business, for his hotels and, and things. But I think uh, they'll just move on to whatever they're going to do next in trying to continue to mess with uh, democracies in that way and, I'm not going to, I guess, be greatly surprised uh, with whatever reaction they might have. I think we just have to get a grasp on our democracy. We have to make sure that people can vote in November and do it safely, and I think we've got a lot to take care of on our end. Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Tom, thank you for the platform. Mr. Pocan, thank you so much for making yourself available. I have adopted you as my representative, and you're going to adopt me as your constituents. Um, my question to you is regarding the uh, kids at the border, the detention center, the court order they're released. Have they been released? And what's the process? How are they going to be released? Are they going to be released in the U.S. or are they going to be sent back to their homeland? Yeah, Omar, I wish I could give you more information. I don't believe that they have been released yet. <clears throat> and I don't have an answer to the second part about where they'll be released. I would assume that the Trump administration is going to continue to try to doing the wrong thing. In other words, what they started doing on this, and we probably are going to have to have additional lawsuits and fights to try to get to the right spot. But, you know, especially in the time of COVID, I mean, this is just, 
even more inhumane than normal for Donald Trump. And uh, the fact that we can't get more of an outcry from Republicans in Congress is really, uh, again, you know, greatly concerning. Uh, this is real people's lives. And uh, unfortunately, as all too often, Republicans only react when someone they know is affected. And it may take a while to get them to do the right thing in this area. Bob in Wheeling, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning or afternoon, whichever it is there. Tom has broached the subject of the possibility of states not certifying an election result and sending that to the House of Representatives. Can one state do that or does it take a majority of states? How, how would that work? That's very, it's obviously very concerning. Yeah, Tom would have a better answer for you than I would on it. I know that just this week, though, on a call that I was on with a, a smaller group of members of Congress, this issue did come up. So people are definitely you know, aware and watching it. I still don't think it's in the likely mode of anything that's going to happen. However, uh, we have to be ready for, obviously, every scenario with someone who doesn't live by the rules or thinks that they're above the rules. But, Tom, you might have a better answer on uh, the specifics of if it's one state or many that have to yeah, just, just very quickly, I, I wrote an op-ed about this a couple of months ago. In the election of 1876, Sam Tilden actually won both the Electoral College and right. the majority of, of the popular vote. But because his Electoral College victory was one vote short of being 50% plus one, the election got thrown to the House of Representatives, which is what the 12th Amendment stipulates. And in the House, each state has one vote. And right now there's more than 30 states controlled by Republicans. So if it went to the House, Donald Trump would get reelected. And the, the thing that caused that crisis was that four states, Oregon, Mississippi, Florida, and Georgia, I believe it was, said that because of the occupation of union forces, uh, they refused to certify the vote. Gotcha. And if they don't certify the vote, they don't hit the electoral 50%. And then it goes to the House. And that's the if just Texas and Florida do this this year, then Donald sure. Trump gets elected by the House of Representatives. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. I should add, Congressman, mostly for our listeners, I know you're familiar with most of this history, but in that election of 1876 where Sam Tilden won both the popular vote and the electoral vote, the actual person who became president was Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican. And it was because he cut a deal with the Democrats that he would withdraw all the Union forces from the South, which they felt probably a Democrat couldn't get away with because the Democrats were aligned with the South. He cut that deal, and that was the end of Reconstruction. He, he stabbed African-Americans in the back, metaphorically, politically. Gotcha. Yeah, no, no, no. So, I mean, that, that's helpful, Tom, because I didn't have that additional information. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Margo in Prairie Duchesne, Wisconsin. Margo, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. I'm concerned about what if this idiot cancels the vote in November and then also, can't we get him out on the 25th Amendment? This man is not real. I have been battling, calling and calling representatives, 
both parties for three and a half years. Please give me some hope. Yeah, Margo, on the 25th Amendment, I'm not going to be able to give you a lot of hope because it's his cabinet that he appointed, and you know, we know he only brings in the best people, um, according to himself. And, uh, you know, the fact that the people who are still with him at this point tells you kind of what the best people are, and I, I don't think you're going to see them enact the 25th Amendment. However, I do think that, you know, we're watching a lot of cracks starting to form among Republicans that they see they could lose the Senate and they're going to lose more than I think they uh, anticipated. Uh, Liz Cheney most recently has been uh, pretty outspoken. I've watched, you know, Lamar Alexander this week say the president should start wearing a mask. I've watched, you know, a few others. And I think, you know, they're, as I mentioned you know, earlier, Republicans generally react when they're affected or someone they know is affected. You know, they don't have empathy, I think, in the same way that Democrats do when we deal with policy. And, you know, the fact that they're starting to feel affected by what could be coming in November may change their tune a little bit. I don't think Donald Trump's going to be able to get away with uh, trying to call off an election. So I don't think I'll be wrong on this. Again, we're ready for many scenarios, but I think we're in a place where the best thing we can do is just be ready to organize people to vote in November, no matter where you live, no matter what the laws are. We're going to have to find ways to make sure that we have turnout. Cliff in Cleveland, Ohio, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. Joe Biden is in the process of selecting his VP candidate as a progressive. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is a known quantity, and the other women of color that uh, are in the running are kind of unknown. Can the congressman speak to the credentials of the black as to their progressive candidate? Progressive credentials, yeah. So let me answer it this way, and this is probably not the way you'd really like to have it answered, Cliff. I'm just going to apologize because I don't really want to comment on every potential candidate. I think the folks that are being considered the two most progressive are Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Baldwin. You know, I have been very transparent that, you know, I've known Tammy for uh, close to 30 years. You know, Wisconsin's a must-win state. She won the state by 11 points. She's a progressive. She's smart. She's compassionate. She would be an amazing vice president. I think Elizabeth Warren would be an amazing vice president. And I think a number of the other folks they're looking at, but on progressive credentials alone, those are, I think, the two most progressive people that are being, you know, considered seriously at this point. You know, Cliff, I think uh, on other candidates, uh, you know, there's pluses and minuses on everybody. And I think that's what they're trying to determine. So let's just see, you know, maybe if they start narrowing it down a little more and we can kind of comment. But right now, I think there's still a list that I keep seeing of about 10 or 12 names. Brian in Lake Worth, Florida, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Yes. My question is this. During the last election, it was learned that the candidate Trump had foreign help from different countries, but especially from Russia. And everybody said, oh, my God, how terrible is such a thing? You know, this should never happen. Okay, so here we are approaching the next election. What has been done for consequences to any candidate running for president if it's found out before the election, during or after the election that he has accepted foreign aid? Uh, is there anything? As far as I know, even though we say it's terrible, uh, we seem to accept it and uh, we just let life go on. And if I can add to Brian's question, Congressman, new reporting here, this is Mark Warner talking about this. He had put in this provision into the Senate Intelligence Bill that is the writer to the Defense Appropriation Bill that must pass, saying that it's illegal for a campaign to take money from foreign governments. Marco Rubio apparently stripped that out 
and Marsha Blackburn, whenever he tried to introduce it as a standalone piece of legislation, blocked the bill repeatedly back in June of 2019. What's the deal? Why are Republicans opposed to blocking foreign intervention in U.S. elections? Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's kind of a pathetic way to try to, you know, save the president some embarrassment, which they're all, you know, desperate to do. I still think it is against the law. I always have thought to take money from foreign nationals. So I think that that is about the only real protection that you have in place. But Brian's largely correct in that, you know, um, there's help and there's help, right? I mean, Donald Trump, when he says he wants help, I don't know if there was a direct coordination with the campaign or not, but clearly what they did on social media was done to suppress uh, voters and, and cause uh, problems among types of voters. I guess where we have had some progress is, and we need a lot more on this, is getting some of the social media platforms to be better at self-policing so they can't be manipulated in a way that tries to manipulate American voters. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, if people are fine with Donald Trump taking assistance from foreign governments, breaking the law, um, not following the emoluments clause, I mean, if they're so desperate to take anything that he does, as long as people who are Caucasian are in charge of things, I don't know what we can do to that type of, you know, racism that's in some people's heads. And there is a factor of his voters that that's the only thing that matters. But I would hope that for thinking people, maybe suburban voters, independent voters and others, hopefully they'll see this as something you don't want to have in a leader literally begging for help from whether it be Russia, China or anywhere else. You know, Trump is going all in on monuments and base names. Do you think that that the electorate has changed so much that Nixon and Reagan's essentially Southern strategy won't work this time? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at the polling, especially on this issue, and, and independence, it was a 20-point spread. Even among, you know, we have more Republicans than you see a break on almost any other issue. You know, the good thing that I was heartened by is not as many people really are, you know, going to be appealing to racist messages. In fact, they think that we thought we resolved this in the 60s, and we clearly haven't, and we better get it done now, and there seems to be an urgency on it. So I do think that that's going to work with us. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm mildly intrigued by the mayor of Atlanta as people Great look shot. at um, her as a vice president. You know, there's just, I, I, I think there is a way we can make a good case in the South. Yeah, thank you. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls here on the Tom Hartman program, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And Patrick in Seaside, California, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman Pocan. My question is, if the election goes to the House of Representatives, but the Democrats hold on to the House, how does Trump still win? I'm confused about that. Yeah, Patrick. So I, I think the theory, and again, I still think it's a pretty remote theory. So I don't want. I would much rather people organize around getting people out to vote in November than worrying about this scenario because other people who can worry about this scenario are working on it. It would be then up to the states. So if in Wisconsin, for example, Donald Trump lost it, let's just say this time by a hundred thousand votes, 
but because five of our eight members of the House are Republicans because of gerrymandering, those five people could vote for Wisconsin's votes to go to Donald Trump. That's what happened in that election that was mentioned earlier. But again, I think the single best thing we can do, rather than having some angst over something that we can't have direct control over, we really can have direct control over getting people to make sure they're registered uh, and they're getting uh, absentee ballots and they're getting to vote in the November elections. And I just really want to stress that because, you know, people are aware of this. People are looking at it and, uh, and they're going to be ready. But the best thing we can do where we need people power is making sure we've got people voting. Pauline in Atlanta, Georgia. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, thank you. Tom, I felt your station and I, I really enjoy uh, listening to you. Thank you, Paul. I have, I guess, three questions. The first one, you guys kind of touched on a little bit already. I had heard that the bill that the Senate is getting ready to sign and send over to the president for his, to the president for his signature about changing the names of the bases. They have actually put in that bill that they do not have to announce when they give foreign money in their in elections. They do not have to announce that they're getting foreign money in the elections. And so, of course, he's going to sign that bill because he's getting foreign money in his election. That's the first question. The right. second uh, one... Pauline, I- we just get one question per person, but thank you. <laughs> Congressman? Yeah. So, Pauline, I think I have some good news for you because the bill that the Senate's doing doesn't go just to the president because we haven't done that bill yet in the House. We'll be doing that in July. And uh, very likely we're not going to have similar language around a number of these areas. So because of that, eventually there'll be a House and a Senate bill. It'll have to go to conference committee and then it'll go to the president. So we've got some time and I don't think the House of Representatives is going to allow anything. You know, the Democratic control of the House is going to allow some of that language that the Senate put in there. So I think you can be a little rest assured that, you know, we're still going to make sure we're doing our due diligence in July, but this isn't automatically going to the president for a signature. Tasha in Atlanta, Georgia, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, My question is about the federal student loans that were supposed to be suspended because of the CARES Act during the pandemic. I have two student loan servicers. One of them did it with no problem, but the second one didn't. And it keeps telling me that my federal loans don't qualify. So I'm confused about that. I thought all federal loans did. Um, I'm not sure what I need to do. Um, If there's some federal loans that were not covered, depending on who the servicer is. Yeah, Tasha, what I would do just because I don't know the particulars of your case is you should get the, the types of loans that you have because there could be private versus, um, you know, quasi-public loans, and there could be some differences. And then call your member of Congress or the Senate, and um, they can help do it as a casework um, uh, issue. Because it could, my guess is it's just you have one loan provider who's trying to basically not follow the law. Um, I, I talked to a friend yesterday in Arizona who um, mentioned that uh, they, they were working at a, a Target and uh, they got notified that they had contact with someone um, with COVID in their workplace, and yet they weren't telling them not to come in. They are telling them they still have to come in, and I don't think that is something you're supposed to do either, yet they, I didn't realize at Target you sign a nondisclosure and you can't say this stuff publicly, which I didn't think Target was one of those types of corporations, but apparently they are. 
So, you know, I just think sometimes it's just bad corporate behavior, not trying to follow the laws that we place. But you can get a little more help by having your member of Congress make some of those calls first to find out if the loan qualifies. Second, make that company, if they're not doing their jobs, do their job. And I would recommend you're a case for, for doing this as a filing this as a casework file. Andy in Jonestown, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Okay. I'm looking at these voting machines. I mean, they've been rigged in 2016, and I'm not hearing a discussion comparing the reliability of the voting machines, which are hackable, and they're probably trying to hack as we speak or working on plans to hack them as we speak, and the security of mail-in voting. You know, I think we should have a national discussion about the security of these things. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I, first of all, Andy, I follow this fairly close, and I, I don't think we have that much <clears throat> reason to believe that there has been a direct hacking of machines. We know that there were attempts to. In fact, almost every single state, I think, uh, in major metro area, there was an attempt to, but they weren't necessarily successful. It is important, though, and this is why I've had legislation that got introduced in um, and included in the H.R. 1 and, and another bill that you have a paper ballot uh, with any electronic voting machine. So you have a verifiable receipt that you can hand count, and that helps to, one, avoid fraud, but two, gives you that extra security. Your ballot matters. But I, I think another thing you bring up, Andy, is just this absolutely ridiculous argument the Republicans are making that you can't trust mail-in voting, when, of course, almost all of them have voted by mail. We just had a, a analysis in Wisconsin, and I'm going to probably lowball the number but I thought it was over 90%, but I'm going to say it's at least 80% of Republican lawmakers who didn't want to have vote by mail uh, voted by absentee in the elections this spring. So it's always, you know, don't do what I do, do what I tell you to do uh, all too often with these elected officials. And, uh, you know, I think we need to stand up to that argument about fraud and vote by mail because it's absolutely um, uh, false. And uh, I think, you know, the best thing we can do, even more than um, worrying about machines right now, is worrying about people getting them to vote early so they don't have to show up, because we don't know what it's going to look like on Election Day. So the best thing we can do is get those absentee ballots uh, and get people requesting those. Sharon in Greenville, South Carolina, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, Tom, thank you and Representative Pocan for taking my call. I've been trying to get on for so long. To add to what your previous caller just said, I am in South Carolina. I asked for an absentee vote. Okay, they send you an application and you fill it out for you to receive uh, an absentee vote in the mail. And there's a questionnaire on it. You have to be a registered voter and you have to send that back in for them to send you an absentee vote. And if you're 65 years or over, it's automatically marked if you prefer to vote absentee. Uh, My question that I actually had for you was with this pandemic rising and going on, and you have Republican mayors, governors. Uh, Sharon, we have, have less than a half people. a minute until we're going to hit a break. Can you can you get right to the question, please? Okay. okay. Well, my question is, you know, it's not like the flu. It's not just going away as they're trying to make people believe. This is a pandemic. And unless you stop it, it will keep going till it kills everyone. So thank you for being there. And thank you. Okay, your thoughts on on Sharon's comments, Colin? Yeah, I think her comments are essentially around why we want to be able to vote absentee. Some states are going to send out request, you know, a form that you can request one automatically. We're doing that in Wisconsin, for example. 
even uh, with a gerrymandered legislature. Our Elections Commission did that, and uh, others will have to request it. But whatever the laws in our area, we have to do to make sure people are getting ballots. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Harvin program. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House. His website, Pocan, P-O-C-A-N dot house dot gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. It's the Tom Hartman Book Club. We're reading today from the American Revolution of 1800, the original edition written by Dan Sisson, and I contributed to the updated version. And this is from the afterword, which I wrote. Uh, We're on page 220. And we've talked about the five criteria that Thomas Jefferson had that will provoke a revolution, and we'd already covered the first three of them. This is the final two. When Reagan came to power after 50 years of New Deal policies, America was among the most socially mobile of all the world's developed nations. After 30 years of Reaganomics, however, the United States is among the least socially mobile nations in the developed world. All of this suggests a revolution could be brewing. Jefferson's final two criteria for a revolution were the people's understanding of their relationship to the constitutional powers present in the government of the day and even of the hour, and the degree of liberty expressed in a declaration of rights toward which the revolution aims. Once again, we find the vast majority of the people frustrated. In 1976, in the Supreme Court case Buckley v. Vallejo, the court discovered in the First Amendment an explicit protection for money and its uses, particularly with regard to politics. Two years later, in the case of First National Bank v. Bellotti, the Supreme Court found that the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War to give equal protection rights to corporations. Most Americans had never noticed the word money in the First Amendment, or indeed anywhere in the Constitution itself, And most Americans thought the Civil War was largely fought to free the slaves, not the transnational corporations. But there it was. And the Supreme Court brought these two decisions together in a big way in 2010 in its Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission ruling. Corporations were now persons, even humans, and money is no longer property, but it has become free speech. To add insult to injury, both major political parties have spent much of the past 30 years promoting so-called free trade deals that have added vast power to corporations to not only send American jobs overseas, but even to sue individual states or cities that might act in ways to prevent it. And the revelations by Edward Snowden and others that the U.S. government was treating its citizens' privacy with contempt have revealed most of all how much our Constitution has been eroded. Many Americans are asking, what happened? Without privacy, how can one have private thoughts? How can democracy even exist? These are what the First and Fourth Amendments were supposed to guarantee and protect. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, those Americans who sounded the alarm about rising inequality, the loss of manufacturing jobs, and disappearing civil liberties were largely regarded as the fringe. Although Ross Perot, running on these fringe issues, captured nearly 20% of the vote in 1992. People were starting to wake up back then. Americans began to see as corporations and the very wealthy acquired increasing rights and powers, that their own individual rights under the Constitution were being rapidly diminished. And the degree of liberty they experienced was in a downward spiral, both politically and economically. Today, the rise of grassroots movements on both the right and the left, the Tea Party and Occupy, are ample evidence of revolutionary pressures. Jefferson's observations have been borne out over and over again throughout American history and the history of the world. And now his prescience about revolution confronts us. Not only have political parties sealed their lock on America's political system, 
But the power of faction, the faction of corporate and multi-generational wealth, have been cemented into place by our Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the founding notion that our government was to be a force for good, fully representing the will and needs of we the people, is ridiculed as a matter of policy by one of our two national parties. The ideals of majority rule, principled compromise, and collaboration and cooperation have been discarded in favor of a relentless effort to destroy the opposing party and its standard bearer. James Madison must be rolling over in his grave. And Thomas Jefferson, were he alive today, would be saying, I warned you, even the high federalists like John Adams and John Marshall and that fervent mercantilist Alexander Hamilton would be shocked by the state of our nation today. One of the most important lessons of the Revolution of 1800 was that when a nation has gone astray, it can be brought back to its senses with a revolution at the ballot box. Once again, we can see the connection between Jefferson and our time by recalling one of his most quoted sentences, the one that circles the dome of the Jefferson Monument in Washington, D.C., uttered in frustration over lies spread during the campaign by extreme religious factions, it stands as a remedy to a free society to rebut the allegations made in our time. Jefferson's rebuttal 200 years ago still stands. He says, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. The tyranny over the minds of men continues today to include that of the religious zealots, That's who Jefferson was speaking of, by the way, when he wrote those words. But to this faction has been added the factions of transnational corporations and billionaires. In some, our Congress is looking more like the high Federalist domination legislature of the eve of Jefferson's Revolution of 1800, paralyzed and polarized by factions within parties that ignore the vast majority of working people in the United States. In a very real sense, we are still confronting the choice between Hamilton's vision of society, an elitist government owned by the wealthy and bottomed on corruption, or Jefferson's, liberty, freedom, economic equality, and democracy in the interests of the common man. One is the illusion of freedom in a false democracy. The other is the promise of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and the Revolution of 1800. Revolution of 1800 by Dan Sisson and Tom. Ishmael in Riverside, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. So, yeah, basically my question is, you know, what can Congress, particularly the Progressive Caucus, do to ensure that there's more Hispanic representation in media, particularly on the left? I'm not sure if you're asking, like, we can't legislate something, I don't think, around this. But I think, you know, what we've been trying to do just through advocacy in general is, you know, promote diversity. And obviously media is one of the areas that we need to promote it more than many other areas because it's such a visible face to the country. So, you know, I I think the more we help, you know, make sure that there's diversity on panels that are interviewing us as candidates, I think is is one way. There's an effort around having women be more involved in government. I'm forgetting the project's name, but Don Beyer, uh, one of my colleagues, has mentioned this because he's a part of it that people agree that if there's a panel they're on, unless there's a woman on the panel, they won't speak at that panel. And I think that's a good initiative, right, to show people that we have to have proper representation on panels so we don't just keep doing the same old, same old. And maybe that's one of the areas where we can start doing that more with whether it be interviews or, you know, things that we can probably have a little more control on, candidate forums, et cetera, and that could be an idea. 
Mark in Goutine, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, fellas. Thanks for taking my call. I have just one statement and one question. Uh, my statement is I'd love to see Elizabeth Warren as VP, Kamala Harris as AG, and Susan Rice as Secretary of State. Also, my question real quick, and I'll take this off the air, is what is happening with the extended benefit for unemployment in the Congress? Thanks, guys, and I uh, hope uh, you have a good day. Thank you. Yeah, Mark, uh, well, probably one of the most important questions, right, given where we're at in the country. And, you know, we're still waiting for the Republicans to say that they're going to do another COVID bill. And Mitch McConnell has been almost negligently silent or, or not very outspoken on this. And uh, we need them to come to the table. I believe that because the extended monies are running out on July 25th, that that will bring people to the table. I think the fact that southern states, Republican states, are having a surge in coronavirus cases. Again, Republicans only act when something affects them or someone they know that may make them do something. But we need to have a bill before the end of July go through both houses of Congress that protects people on unemployment. And we would like to see that additional money continued that helps small businesses, because right now I think 30 or 40 percent of businesses could likely close if we don't do something and uh, protect our frontline workers and gets money to state and local government. So it's much of what we did in the HEROES Act, but through negotiation with the Senate, we just need the interest from the Senate to do it. And uh, I think that they will have to act because that's one of the biggest issues that's going to be out there. July 25th, that surge money runs out. And I I don't think you want to do that abrupt of a cliff. Congressman, we've got 10 seconds. Do Do you think this is going to happen soon or are they going to take it to the last minute? Uh, Unfortunately, everything I've seen in Congress happens at the last minute, so I'm going to bet my money on last minute. Yeah, there you go. So later this month. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Welcome back. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Justin in Norman, Oklahoma. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, fellas. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I want to make a sarcastic point or an ironic point first and then uh, followed up by a question. So my ironic point is that Republicans love to take such pride in honoring our military members for taking the ultimate sacrifice of going to war to defend their fellow citizens, uh, which is well taken. But these same people can't be bothered to take the most basic sacrifice of wearing a face mask to protect their fellow citizens. And I think that's highly ironic and troubling. And then my actual question is, I think so much of politics and the civil discourse these days is around messaging. And I'm wondering what we're going to do when Trump starts to debunk the mail-in ballots, if we do need to, to move to that. What are the Democrats willing or ready to do to battle that messaging? Yeah, uh, good question, Justin. So first of all, I mean, the good news is we have actual states like Oregon and other places that have, or Oregon, I'm sorry, uh, I have a relative, real family out there, I should say it the correct way, uh, uh, who have done this for a long time and can point to the lack of any voter fraud and the fact that this works and they have incredibly high turnout and great satisfaction among the people 
who are voting that way. So, you know, Donald Trump will continue to, I mean, Donald Trump lies like some people breathe or drink water, right? So uh, you're never going to stop him from lying, but I think we can at least, to anyone who's thinking, share the thoughts that this isn't a problem. And again, in states like Wisconsin, where we had a vote in April in the middle of the pandemic, you know, 71% of people voted via absentee, including that meant Republicans and independents. That's the preferred way to vote rather than getting sick and potentially dying. So I think we can make a pretty strong case and we just need to be able to be that blunt, I think, in making the case. David in Spotswood, New Jersey, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, good afternoon. My question is about private equity and, and I'll be brief. Paul uh, Wellingstone and Carl Levin has been uh, touching this issue. In the beginning of June, the Labor Department is now allowing the private equity to get 401k money. And this is on top of the $4 trillion they have as of 2017 and defined benefits from all the states and whatnot. A, can something be done with the carried interest rule, which allows them to do long-term capital gains for their income, and also legislating what they do with that money? I mean, there was a report to Congress from the 2010 financial crisis that showed that low tax states uh, greatly impacted, you know, enhanced by derivatives, caused our financial crisis 10 years ago. And from what I've seen on TV, they're, they're all happy to do it again. Thanks. Yeah, David, so your question is one of those classic can and will. Um, can Congress do it? Yes. Will Congress do it because of Mitch McConnell leading the Senate? No. Uh, I don't see them doing uh, things to rein in private equity firms. And, you know, right now we're seeing uh, continued and in, in additional uh, abuses by private equity firms. We could have an hour-long conversation just on why some of these larger firms especially are just doing things that are uh, not in anyone's interest but the, the few people who are making money from that firm, and yet Congress won't stand up to them. I certainly don't think Mitch McConnell will do anything. So, yes, are there ways we could uh, put controls on them? You bet. And we've even introduced some legislation with Elizabeth Warren to do just that. Unfortunately, Mitch McConnell's not going to do anything around this. Marion, Flatwoods, Kentucky. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, gentlemen, and thank you for your time. Um, I have two kids in high school, and I'm concerned about them returning in August. The football team has been practicing, and on Monday, a child tested positive. Uh, with the numbers skyrocketing, do you see any changes in them going back to school? Um, honestly, I don't know, and I think this is probably going to be a decision state by state, maybe even locality by locality. And unfortunately, in places, you know, it's it's really going to depend on what, what the political jurisdiction in your area might say on this. Even though people that I respect, like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Gottlieb, Scott Gottlieb, and and others you know, haven't been definitive yet on the answer. I think we're still in a little bit of a wait and see. I mean, right now, if everyone started wearing masks and if the president actually stood up and did something presidential uh, to unite the nation, uh, we might be able to get the numbers to go down by then. But short of some of those things happening, it's going to be less likely some of the things that we planned on happening late August and September are going to be able to happen. But I don't know if I have a definitive answer because I haven't heard it from the people I trust yet, but it largely will be a decision made by the political jurisdiction that you're living in, and you probably have a better idea if it's a, a red, blue, or a more balanced, uh, you know, one where you're going to have to have this debate uh, and try to, to convince people. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by today. We're always Absolutely, great Absolutely, Tom. You. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. Yep. Have a great afternoon. Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov. You can check out his website. 
and uh, you can tweet him at Rep Mark Token. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And a special, by the way, a special thanks to our crew who are pitching in and working out and doing yeoman's work in a scary time. And I just want to acknowledge uh, everybody who's working with me and, and Nigel and Sue, who Nigel, who keeps up our website, who are working from home, and Sue Nethercutt, who does our newsletter every day with a list of all the articles that, and every story that I've talked about during the show in it. Sue's Daily Stack, and it's free, and you can find it all over TomHartman.com. Patrick and Jerry Lynn, who put together our podcasts, and Jamie, who does our hardcore webmastering stuff. He's working from home. He's out in, I believe, Kentucky or Tennessee. But uh, we got people scattered literally all over the globe working on this program. Nigel and Sewer in the UK. And Nate, thank you all. And thank you for listening and, and watching and supporting our, our nonprofit stations and Free Speech TV and supporting our for profit stations and, the, and letting their advertisers know that you're listening. We are seeing advertising dropping off rather precipitously. You know, it's going to be a tough time for our business, just like it is for every other business. We are going to get through this. We're doing everything we can. <laughs> it's a pandemic. So we'll all get over that, right? We could all agree to that. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 